0: Hello, and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and babies. (laughs) I mean, your user experience baby, (laughs) Roman (laughs) Burkut. Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you?
1: I'm good. I just feel like, you know, the podcast is for all levels of UX, whether you're a UX baby or a UX octogenarian,
0: we (laughs) welcome all. Mercifully, I'm not yet a a UX octogenarian. (laughs) You will be one day, Roman. Say it ain't so. Well, as I'm getting ready to start a new role, I've been thinking a lot about our time working together, Larry. Um, One of the best things that I've learned from you is the UX maturity model, or more precisely, your UX maturity model. I'd certainly encountered various maturity models elsewhere, but you created a custom model that serves as both a measurement of our efforts as well as a plan for maturing the practice. So I'd like to spend some time looking at maturity models and hopefully help listeners get started with creating their own, especially since it's the first thing I plan to do at my new job. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) If you ever want to start a podcast, just record the stuff that you want to know yourself. (laughs) And get somebody on to talk about it so you can just steal all their stuff. Exactly. Very good. (laughs) So to start us off, um, just what is a maturity model?
1: Well, um, I just want to correct one thing there. It's not my maturity model. I did not create this maturity model. I indeed, as I just mentioned earlier, stole it from somebody else. But I use it as a base to, you know, to take, take... I actually uh, evaluated a lot of different maturity models and and evaluated the situation I was in and this one seemed to match best what, you know, the, the what I was trying to accomplish in the the position I was. But we can talk about that later.
0: Um Yeah, so- yeah, for sure. We'll we'll get into that, but I, I guess what I meant is you actually um you populated the maturity model with the specifics of our practice and where you wanted to go. Yes, so absolutely correct. Was- correct. Yeah. So you so- weren't just using the slide you downloaded off the internet. <laughs>
1: Yes. I <laughs> no, I like to change the icons too. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Very good. So yeah, uh so uh, for those who don't have a mental picture already. What are we talking about with a a maturity model?
1: Yeah, so a maturity model. So what are we actually talking about when we're talking about a maturity model? Um, If we go to our, our old friend Wikipedia, it'll tell us that a maturity model is a measurement of the ability of an organization for continuous improvement in a particular discipline. That's a really great definition. I think so too. Um, I thought it was really, really good. It's you know, and it's 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 really about you know, it's a measurement, right? So you're trying to measure a certain level of maturity in a certain particular discipline and how well an organization is able to continuously improve it. It's not, it, and it's not just measuring. Today, it's also mm-hmm. talking about the ability of an organization to continuously improve. And so I really like that one because I'm always looking for a way to, to continuously improve the practices that I'm in and having a model like a maturity model to, you know, measure it and also um, use it as a way to, as, as a predictive measure and to um, show that a particular
0: organization is continually improving in something I think is really good. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that's what I was saying. Is like um, I had seen maturity models before, and only had thought of them in the sense of seeing where I am now. And even as this this Wikipedia uh, definition talks about, it's it's measuring the ability to continuously improve. And that's I think what was kind of revolutionary to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's kind of the reason why I I, I like to use it so much. Just because you know one of the things I'm most trying to do is continuously improve the practice, and so. This, this helps us do that, but it helps us do it in a way that speaks sort of the language of business, as, as I like to call it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, maturity models that come from, um, well, at least the first maturity model that I ever ever uh, heard about or experienced was the CMMI, which is the Capability Maturity Model Integration. And the reason why I was familiar with this is because working on government contracts, they typically, depending on the contract, have a certain level of CMMI that you have to be um, uh, compliant with in order to get certain contracts. And all I remember it being a lot more paperwork and overhead
0: oh yikes cmmi i'm already a little turned off by the name what does what does that mean
1: yeah it's the capability maturity model integration oh yes. of course great <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and again it's used by dod u.s government contractors you know it's, it's it's something the federal government uses to measure the maturity of an organization that they're using for contracting um and um And they use it, it's used as a guide for general process improvement across projects, divisions, or entire organizations. And I think they have something that's specific to software development um, um, projects as well. Um, So that's the first time I ever um, sort of encountered that stuff. But, you know, so we talked about what a maturity model is, but we, what, what specifically does it measure? So, so it's measuring the ability of the organization continues improvement in a discipline, but what is it, you know, what are some of the things that are actually measuring? Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the important thing to think about this is, is it's a it's a qualitative measure. You know, I've always often come in and, you know, talking to C-level people and they're expecting, you know, quantitative data on things. It's like, no, you can't really, well, it's like, well, how do I measure when you get from step one of this model to step two and it's like well it's it's not like okay we're it's the the, the goal is a five and we're only on number f- we're on a four right now and so once our score right. hits five then we're the, you know it doesn't work that way it's more it's, it's it's more of a qualitative sort of measure but the things that it does measure i think are are very interesting it's you know it's it's and it's sort of the 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 classic people Um, tools and processes type of thing, right? It's like qualitative Mm -mm. measure of, you know, what's the people, you know, how do we use our people? What's the culture? Things like that. You know, processes. You know, how things. You know, what what are the processes that we do? What are the processes we have in place? Are they the things that are indicative of, of a of a an out of date sort of maturity, or somebody who's like really on the cutting edge? And even the things that we use, um, the tools that we use to do our work, or the technology that we're using, and how we're utilizing that um, to, to for the practice are the sort of the things that that, that get measured. Um, and we can talk about a little bit, like when I get into the specifics of some of those other maturity models uh, as examples, um, we can talk about how those sort of kind of map to um,
0: the, the those types of, of maturity models. So uh, we can cruise on past this one unless you found that there was something useful about um, applying this back when you were doing government contracts. So <laughs> I really
1: kind of ignored it because it was like, Oh, that sounds like it. it was basically somebody's job to make sure mm-hmm. that the, 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 project was doing all these things. And, 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 you know, like I said, it was like, it, it just, I, all I remember of it was like being a lot of overhead and, and work and very specific on how requirements are written and collected and change processes and, and all that stuff that we like look at like modern, um, software development now and be like whoa you think there's a lot of overhead of scrum wait till you see cmmi <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah no doubt i mean just uh, glancing at this and, and we'll link it in the show notes but uh, the, the sample that you have here uh level one is the initial level where processes are unpredictable poorly controlled and reactive so what's interesting to me about that uh and really going all the way through this thing um these don't sound like they lend themselves well to um, quantitative measure, and yet knowing our government and how bureaucrats work in general, this is exactly the kind of thing where we would need to be able to justify a, you know, an an eighty-seven percent on level one of the CMMI matrix.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how they're actually sort of determined whether you're level one level two I'm sure there's a, a set of common criteria that they have to check off and um...
0: well fortunately uh, that's that doesn't come until level four where the process is quantitatively managed That's right <laughs> so that in itself is a is the measure of how mature you are <laughs> right if you don't have quantitative measures then you're just obviously not mature
1: <laughs> It doesn't matter if what you're measuring quantitatively is important or not but we're measuring it
0: damn it. Okay, so uh so that was kind of the uh your first exposure to maturity models and wasn't a particularly good impression left but that maybe primed you for um, using these tools going forward is that fair to say
1: um yeah I think so um, I think it's interesting that there's other industries out there that have you know taken the maturity model model and applied mm-hmm. it to their own you know sort of uh, fiefdom like for instance you know the change management Institute has their own maturity model of people who are maturing organizations or how mature organizations are introducing change effectively. Right. So, um, mm, okay. which is a huge problem with large organizations like implementing, you know, a new HR system or merging two very large companies and switching one company over from, you know, these, their financials to the other people's financials, all that stuff is like these huge changes. Um, and there's like, you know, in the whole change management industry has their own maturity models, like how well that an organization is apt, is, is able to, you know, Introduce change effectively. So, I mean, there's there's there, the project management institute has their own maturity model. There's a quality management maturity model. There's business process management maturity models. IT has a bunch of maturity models, including a DevOps maturity model. And and then I even discovered that there's a SharePoint maturity model.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the highest level is not using it. <laughs> <laughs> it <is. laughs>
1: Exactly. <laughs> Once you get to the levels, like you really don't want to be using SharePoint.
0: <laughs> we're on the uh, we're on level six of the SharePoint maturity model, which means we're using Slack. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, what makes me uh, giggle here is uh, on the sample from the, the Change Management uh, Institute, the CMM, mm-hmm. or change management yeah, the Change Management Institute maturity model. Um, the photo you have here, basically, it's a it's a it's a table tabular layout. Um, and so in each block, it's got a, a text description of that intersection between level and, you know, whatever the the column header is. But on the far right hand side, when it gets to the uh, profitability and responsiveness, they basically just label the top one and the bottom one and put a big arrow across the middle. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a gradient. We got, we got tired of writing all this stuff. <laughs> you get the idea. Right, right. It even has a gradient as a background. So
1: you kind yeah, of exactly. get like, oh yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's you know,
0: it's gray area. You've got some change. Yada, yada, yada. Here comes good process. That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the classic, you know, we were at highest rate of failure fail, project failure, then yada yada yada, we have high profitability. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm glad we hired them. <laughs> <laughs> For those who are not clicking through to the uh the 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 linked uh examples Help us get a, a mental image of what we're talking about here. What, what are the kinds of things that you find in a maturity model?
1: Right. So there's like sort of a standard list of things, whether you're, you know, it's a UX maturity model or it's the CMMI or the Change Management Institute, whatever. They all have sort of three sort of, Characteristics that 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 each of them use, and one of and the first one is levels, right? So usually there's like a lower level of you know somebody has no maturity in a particular thing, and then they've got like a higher level that has the you know the you're the high at the highest level of the maturity for this particular thing, and so and sometimes they use like stages, like we will say stage one, stage two, stage three, um, especially like uh, some of the ones like like the the Nielsen Norman Group has a UX. Um, maturity model that has like eight different stages. And so they call them stages because there's a bunch of them. Um, but, um, and, and sometimes those stages may be, you know, sort of named to give you an idea of what it means to be at that level at a, high, at, a at a sort of, you know, 10,000 foot level. Um, so we've got different levels and then you've got different categories of things that you might be measuring. Like, you know, it may be uh, some sort of, you know, people thing. Like for instance, one of the, the, in the the maturity model I've been using, there's things like, you know, how involved UX is in the strategy process or how, what's the scope of things that they work on or what are, you know, the type of research that they do um, or whether we're, you know, hiring generalists versus, um, you know, uh, you know, specialists in research versus interaction design versus visual design, things like that. So you got levels, which is like where you are, you know, in, in maturity, then you got categories that explain the things that we're measuring and then In each one of the categories, there may be multiple things that are descriptions of those specific people and processes or technology and tools that each level has. So for instance, we would have in the maturity model I used, we would have a level of either you know, immature, maturing, or very mature. And then for a category, we might have what kind of research we do. And then an immature organization would be we do no research at all. We just kind of shoot from the hip and uh, make assumptions about what we think is going to be more usable for the customer. Or then we might have, in the second level, we do start doing usability testing or um, start to do uh, some contextual inquiry with customers where you actually watch them use the products in, in their context of them doing the work. And then you might have a more advanced one one that has very sophisticated customer outcome measures and, and, and type processes with your, um, your, your research to get that research into, you know, the, the build, measure, learn loops of, you know, a more lean organization, for example. So, so levels, how high you are, categories, you know, what are the types of things you're measuring? And then these descriptions of the piece of process and tools, specific things that you're measuring. Um, and it's usually in a, you know, table format and it's pretty easy to, you know, show your levels and show your different, you know, how far are you along in each one of the, 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 the categories. And it, it's great because it looks great on a slide. <laughs> you can, you can highlight the boxes on each of the levels and each of the categories that you think you are. And then you can show, you know, movement from one level to the other in specific categories, which is really nice, um, uh, which comes in really handy when we talk about, you know, how I sort of use the maturity model in the practice that we
0: had. So let's jump into that. Um, I, I think I meant, you know, as I was saying earlier, I I encountered maturity models as a, um, as a diagnostic tool. You could say, based on this framework, we're here and we're here and we're here. But that was kind of the end of it. Um, I guess, you know, there's the the unstated assumption that you're going to try to, you know, move up the ladder, so to speak. But when it really hit for me was when I saw you presenting this, um, to executive level leadership and you could actually see the change year over year in how our practice was doing. So I would like you to, uh, kind of break down that a little bit. Like, um, what were the kinds of things that you were looking to illustrate? And then, um, how do you think it was uh, received?
1: The thing that I tried to do with the whole maturity model um, process in, in my current practice was, you know, I really wanted to communicate to leadership where the organization was now, right? And and also at the same time, show them what was possible, right? Because, you know, people when people talk about UX, it's like, oh, yeah, we just want to make products better, blah, blah, blah. But they don't really understand typically what are the activities that we do? What is the, what is the behaviors of a high performing UX team? And what are the in- things that are going to indicate um, high performance for the products that, you know, and the, and, and increased value for customers of the products that you're producing. And one way to do that is like, Hey, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, he, doing this. I, what I did was basically did assessment of, you know, the product and um, that we had today and, you know, combine that with, and here is the level of, here's the maturity level of the team that we have. So, here are the plans that we have for our product. You know, here's the places where we've said, as a business, we need to improve. And here are the places, I can go back to the, the the maturity model and say, here are two places on the maturity model where if we should spend resources improving, because that is going to align with the business goals of what we had for the product in the next year, right? So again, it's a communication tool to show the, the executive level where we are and what's possible for us to get to And what's the next steps that we want to do today to get us to the next level and aligning that with the business goals of the, the, the product or service that you have today is really, really important. Um, and then, so yeah, it's a, you know, show them where we are, show them where we want to go, show them what's possible. Um, and it's, it's really a tool to get buy-in from, from, for your resources, for your team. Right. Um, I like to think of it as, you know, speaking the language of business to business people, you know, and a maturity model is a very businessy, you know, you know, somebody went to B schools to seen these things before. Right. And you're you're sort of talking their language at that point and trying to make that bridge in understanding between, you know, their, you know, possibly narrow vision of what UX is and what is actually possible.
0: Watching you present that. Um, and showing you know here's the slide where basically you covered it you colored in the 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 table cells with here's where we were and now this year here's where we are and uh, what i really liked about it is that it showed the uneven progress of different categories which there's nothing wrong with that uh you know it was, i think one of them was like people so now we have uh, enough people and they're all working as generalists so like the next block would be to move people into specialized roles so that would be you know, advancing our, our maturity, but going back to your point about, um, selling to executive shaped minds, um, it really invited a conversation around like, well, why is this one only on, you know, stage one, and these are on stage four or five. And, you you know it just it it primed the pump for you to come in and say well if we had the resources <laughs> that uh, we need imagine what we could do with you know these people and this process with these uh, resources
1: I I think I'll add that to my list of what this is used for and and I think it's a really really good one is and that is a com- conversation starter. Right. You're showing them all. You're showing them, you know, where you think the company is, shows, show them where you want to go. And then they can take a look at something that's like, huh? Why is that important? (laughs) Right. And then you can say, oh, well, this is important because organizations who get this far, blah, 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 get these benefits out of these sort of activities. Um, so yes, absolutely. Con- conversation starters, are uh, uh, definitely. And in fact, Dan Brown, um, who wrote the book on, um, documenting design, um, will tell you that the, the most value in a, any sort of document that you create is or chart or
0: model or anything is the conversation that it starts. Well, so far we've been talking, I think kind of generally about, uh, maturity models. Um, but then as we were preparing for this episode, Uh, I became more aware that there's actually several, um, I guess, well-established user experience maturity models. And so... um, why don't you take us through kind of a, a quick rodeo through all the different, uh, you know, UX maturity models?
1: Well, I'm not going to go through all of them because there are a bunch, but I'll, I'll go through a few that I'm the most familiar with. Um, and um, yeah, you, like you said, there's a bunch of different maturity models. And I would argue that even there is multiple maturity models that come from individual people too, which I can get into. <laughs> um, it's, it, and it's all about what you're trying to measure. You know, what's the, what's the maturity you're trying to measure and, and which one fits with the the job you're trying to get done. So like the first UX maturity model that I ever encountered was the Nielsen Norman group one. And so, um, uh, that one as a, is an H stage thing, and it goes through um from the first stage, meaning, you know, basically basically hostility towards usability in general. <laughs> which is probably it less common now, but probably still exists. I would imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. No doubt. um but that's you know, that's the sort of the developers don't even want to hear about user needs, right? <laughs> yeah, they they don't right, care I like, already know. It's like, you know, it's it's like it's like the, the enterprise um software problem for the longest time. It's like, well, you know. It's enterprise software. You don't have a choice. You got to use it. So that's good enough. They're going to figure out whatever we give them. Right. Right. (laughs) Quick,
0: faster, good. Choose one.
1: Yeah. So that's sort of their stage one. And then they have a stage two where it's like sort of developer-centered user experience where it's, okay, yeah, we need to make the product better, but... um, we'll just think about it more and try to draw from our own experiences of how, you know, of, of, of usability and, and things that we understand. And so it's really uh, sort of that dr- opinion-driven usability that uh,
0: a lot of companies kind of get stuck in for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that they call that out because, I you know, reactively, I wouldn't consider that a stage of uh, user experience maturity at all. But you know, when you think about it, if they're at least thinking about it, even if they're, you know, just making decisions based off of their own opinions, that's not desirable, but it's better than just saying, Oh, get out of here with that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, so it's, yeah, it's really, these, these stages are all sort of measuring, you know, the culture. Right. And so that's, that's a big culture shift, just going from, hey, usability, whatever, to, oh, yeah, I guess that, that actually makes sense, right? We, we should we should pay attention to that, even if we're con- unconsciously incompetent about it, um, which we'll go into in a little bit. But this is sort of the unconscious incompetent, incompetence stage, um, if you want to mix the Nielsen Norman groups model with uh, the Jared, one of the Jared spool models that we'll talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, So then, you know, the Nielsen thing goes on to stage three, which is sort of what they call Skunkworks user experience, where this is um, where you first get people actually doing some user, you know, some solid um, user centered design uh, methods. Um, But it may not necessarily be sort of sanctioned by anybody. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, Hey, this is really important and I want to try this out and and do it. And so, um, it's the first time that people actually like, you know, actually watch a user use a a piece of software or actually have a conversation where we're trying to, you know, really just drill into needs and not just ask people what they want. Right. Um, so still not official. People don't have titles or they don't even have a budget for the team, but you know, people are starting to do design, you know, the user centered design techniques. Right. And then, you know, he sort of goes on a stage board where you actually have a a dedicated UX budget. You know, now they're actually paying for stuff. Right. Um, (laughs) And you have an actual actual team whose, you know, quote unquote job is the user experience. Um, Right. Now we could have conversations about whether that's true or not. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> just because yeah, just, they, <laughs> we, just because somebody,
0: there's money there for it doesn't mean somebody's job is <laughs> to do it.
1: Well, I, 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 it's it, it's interesting because like I just uh, I, somebody put a had a really eloquent tweet about this um, last week that I saw, and it was like um, UX is not a team or a specific you know set of people, right? UX is the outcomes of a bunch of decisions that an entire organization has made, right? that is the actual user experience um now hopefully you'll have a dime team that has a lot of' uh, has a lot of uh, um, influence over that but you know the you, you know you a ux team typically especially at the stage four level of nielsen's um maturity
0: model is definitely not
1: actually um in control of ux at this point
0: yeah i think that's probably where most uh ux people would just kind of tend to start think that's stage one right oh there's people and a budget um, when in, in actuality yeah it does start well before that especially for those of us who started before this was a unknown profession
1: right yeah. And I would say that typically this happens also too in pockets, right? You may just have, um, Oh, the, you know, you might have a large organization and, uh, um, the web team has their uh, usability, t- you know, a U- a UX team, and then the marketing team has a UX team. And then, Oh, the product team, the, on, you know, the, what other dedicated product team has their own UX team. So you might have like these pockets of things, um, which brings us to stage five in in Nielsen's, uh, maturity model. That's that's managed usability. Now you have actual people managing the thing and, likely across these multiple groups so you have like a little more centralized um, control over as opposed to a bunch of UX happening in pockets
0: in a a large organization. And presumably by managed we also are talking about some form of measurement and you know some form of prioritization as well to say this is what we're trying to accomplish, and this is how well we're doing against that goal.
1: Yeah, this is probably the first time somebody actually pulls out a maturity model and shows it to executives at stage five, right?
0: Or, or, or busts out their NPS um, uh, uh, scores and says, yeah, we're we're killing the usability. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I thought you were going to say this is where they pull out their TPS reports, but...
0: NPS DPS (laughs) it's all the
1: same thing right (laughs) just as useful Uh, and then um, they move on to stage six which is sort of a systemic user centered design process where it's like we have processes repeatable processes in place it's not just you know we we, we're ad hoc you know people running amok but we have some systematic things that are going on and some you know real sort of design operations type of processes going on to make sure everybody's you know performing and getting the things that we're supposed to be getting done and we're getting you know uh, customer value into you know going from customer insight to customer value you know quickly very quickly and then finally we have the integrated user center design um well that's step seven that's there's seven more oh there's one more after oh, that. that oh my gosh yeah. i think i don't know it's 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 kind of like the lord of the rings here it's like they should have edited it um an hour earlier um but but maybe <laughs> maybe, the maybe there's a stage it, yeah. seventh and eight um <laughs> that's the only thing i remember the lord of the rings for is like oh man that last <laughs> movie <Ugh. laughs> So stage seven integrated user experience, like this is no longer a magic potion that's sprinkled over the user interface at the last minute um, as, as uh, Jakob Nielsen's um, team has so eloquently written. Um, but you know, there it's, it's actually recognized as a, as a need for the company, right? It's like, it's not something, it's something they can go without, right? It's really valued and like, you know, where they're starting to be given the time to do early research before they do any design. And, you know, it's definitely on the, the big, important projects. That's the first thing that, you know, is, is sort of consulted. So that's
0: really integrated into the entire process. I think that's probably, by my estimation, the, the first stage where a team would stop if there hasn't been some UX design contribution to the process at this point, you know everything prior to that. It's like you know, hey, did design look at this? I don't know, (laughs) but here is you know, by being integrated into the overall process and and outcomes of the company, this is where you're actually able to say, look, we don't ship things that haven't been um, run through our user experience process. Right, exactly, and that brings us to to number eight,
1: and I think actually. I think it makes a lot of sense to have this distinction between seven and eight, because in stage eight um, he makes the distinction that um, the data doesn't just, you know, sort of drive individual projects. It actually determines what types of projects the company funds. Right. And you know, once you get to that point, it's like, yeah, exactly. You know, we're, we're, we're investing in the things that are coming out of the research that we're doing, the, the, the close to in, encounters that we have in customers, you know, all the time. And, you know, a lot of companies think they're already here, right? Cause like, oh yeah, we, it's like, you know, we talk to customers all the time and that drives our, uh, what, you know, our, what it drives, what projects we take on all the time. But, you know, it's Typically what they're missing is like some of the very deep understandings that we can get to with the with the research techniques that u x brings to the table and so um when that gets to the point where it's so good and so mature that it's actually driving the company's business decisions, that's where u x has really sort of sort of arrived in a, an organization
0: and making the maximum contribution right like we're we're truly making a difference for the user, the customer, and um, you know the stakeholder, the the investor, the shareholder, right? Everybody's going to benefit when it's when it's at that level of maturity. Yep, absolutely. The really interesting thing on the the Nielsen Norman model, and probably the thing that, if you didn't catch anything else out of this podcast, that I would want people to walk away with is the aha moment that occurred to me uh, watching you present this, which is it's a maturity model with stages which means that you can only move one box at a time. And so, you know, when I had that, that flash of understanding, it really blew me back in my chair because, you know, how many times have I been uh, in a role where we had very immature um, user experience uh, process and, uh, and practice, and then all of a sudden we get excited about it at an organizational level, And so now we're hiring people and we're staffing all these experts and we're, you know, throwing in, you know, all this process and we're basically trying to jump from, um, crawl to sprint, if you will, and (laughs) bypass all of the learning and growing that's necessary between here and there.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. It's, um, I think, A lot of people can look at a maturity model and say, oh, yeah, let's just let's just get to the most mature as quickly as possible. Right. Because that's you know, that's that's what we need to do to to be really top performing. Right. So let's let's do that. And I think that, you know, that's a can be a huge mistake. Right. Um, You know, and even Nielsen talks about, you know, in in, you know, as an addendum to this talking about going through from stage to stage can take years Right? And he's like, you know, even at stage one, a, a company can remain hostile towards usability for decades, he says. I think that's less likely now, but, you know, at the time that he was, he was sort of formulating <laughs> that was absolutely, could be, could, was actually true, you know? And so it can take years to get from stage to stage, right? Um, even says, you know, when he gets to stage eight, um, few companies actually have even reached this high level of usability. Um, and, you know, He says, you know, it could take from seven to eight years or it could take, um, it's, it's, it's hard to say how long it would take to get from stage seven to
0: stage eight, but it says he's saying in most cases, it's 20 years. No doubt. No doubt. And I mean, and to me, that's the, the really big risk here is that if you. Uh, as a a leader uh, in product design, user experience, start trying to jump past these stages and go straight to the most mature, most high-end practice ever imagined, then what's most likely going to be the outcome of that is you're going to burn people out, you're going to give them a bad taste, and then that organization is going to be scarred for a long time with the uh, memory of, we tried that and it didn't work. Right, we built a crazy uh, usability test lab with two-way mirrors and all this and we spent about six months making developers come in and watch people fumble with our software and then, you know, a few people at the top changed, uh, changed seats and now the place basically just sits there empty. Yeah. Ah, uh, heartbreak.
1: Yeah, I think you need to... Move through the steps as fast as the culture and business allows, right? Because um, you're just not going to be able to blaze through them because there's there's forces in place that are, are going to keep you back. And um, like you said, it's like an organization has to learn the value of this stuff. You know, it's like you, it's like getting the 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 ability to do a bunch of really advanced you know customer research is. Um, something you gotta you gotta prove the value to that before you're you know act, that actually becomes the norm, right? And so you have to you know start doing it and then start to show the value and then uh, a, a larger group of people will see the value of that and then maybe you can like you know get some 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 um, uh, network effects of you know other people starting to do that or start to get that into the organization and then but that you know that that process takes a long time. It's uh, it's a lot of soaking in and then you have to fight against you know people leaving and attrition and organizational changeover and, and all that. And, you know, sometimes that can be an advantage because that can help, you know, it's like people are coming into the culture that's already established as opposed to having to change the existing. Um, but at the same time, it's just, it, it just takes a long time to, 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 to move the needle on things like that, which is why I, um, focused on, Hey, here's where we are today. Here's two things that I want to move in the next year, or at least start to invest in
0: and, and fantastic, you know, because I would argue that you want to, as a as a really solid practitioner, you want to create true believers rather than you know just a fad, rather than just being the buzzword of your company, the the latest you know thing that's going to go on a, somebody's uh, quarterly you know goals. I, I would argue that what you really want is for the people that you uh, interact with to move on through the rest of their careers as true believers in the value. Of user experience design and testing
1: yeah absolutely um that's that then i think that's part of the reason why i think the maturity model is really measuring culture right because it's it's, it's, it's the, it's collective behaviors of an organization. And in order to get them to do new behaviors, you have to start to put in place things that will get them to, you know, entice them to do those new behaviors. And that's how you move it. And that's not a thing unless you have a, you know, a very militaristic top-down, you know, command structure, and say you will do X, Y, Z, you know, that we, we know that doesn't work in knowledge work. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really just like, about pulling levers to get the behaviors that move you into that and in, into those um, into those steps of, of higher maturity.
0: So that was a, a pretty detailed walk through uh, the Nielsen Norman um, UX maturity model. Uh, there are others um, who who stands out as being really good. So I want to go into two different peoples. Um,
1: I, want to go into, <laughs> I want to go into Jared Spool because Jared seems to have like three different ones that I've heard him talk about. Um, and I think only one of them he talks of as, as, as he it's quote unquote UX maturity model. And it's one of the ones he talked about in the, in the two thousands. Right. Um, and it, it's very similar to the, the, the Nielsen normal one. Where it's like, he's got five, it's only five different, different stages but he's got like the dark ages where, you know, people are just focused on business and technology and aren't considering the user experience at all. Um, you've got stage two, which is spot design where it's like a design leader starts to, you know, do some gorilla stuff and try to um, basically swim against the stream to, to, to get some, you know, good UX practices happening. And then you get to the point where it's design as a service where you have like, Oh, we have now a UX team, but they get sort of farmed off as an internal service into the company. And so You never get anybody on long term projects or anything like that. Just like, oh, we need a UX person to push some pixels around this thing
0: to make it better or more usable. Right. And you only get to touch the things that are deemed very important, but not at all urgent. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a key distinction
1: right there. Very important. But if it was urgent, we would not
0: have any time for this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. And then from there you get up to embedded. Yeah, he's what got Im-
1: yeah embedded design. So that's where teams are bringing their own UX design capability. Um, it's starting to separate from the centralized design team. So this is more of an embedded. You know, it's going from the 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 internal agency model into the embedded UX. You know, you have actually a, a, a team is is in is is made up of engineers and UX people and PM or QA or whatever. So um it's mm-hmm. it's where you're more Im- embedded the team you're not just like a a consultant to the team when asked. Um,
0: um, yeah, okay.
1: And then he's got step 5 which is more of the infused UX design where um UX design is infused into the company and people that aren't don't have UX designer labels are actually doing user centered design techniques, right? So we've we've gotten to the point where we've talked Talk to people that are you know making de- decisions about the the product that are affecting the experience but now they're taking it from a, a user-centered design approach as opposed to their ah you know better approach All right so
0: i can only imagine what sort of uh corny essential oil jokes he makes about infused ux design we smell like lavender <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but he has this other model and
1: yeah, so I've also t- so that's like the 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 old one that he's been talking he's had for a few years. And then he's got this new thing he's been talking about recently where and he's called he calls it the conscious competence learning model and he's something he's taken from from somebody else.
0: But it's where Yeah, this is straight <laughs> out of the Johari window. Yeah, yeah,
1: so it's 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 the st- it's the st- it's four stages. And it's you know it starts with unconscious incompetence, where you're incompetent about design, but you're unconscious of it. Right. And so you don't know how much you suck. Yeah, you don't know how much you're sucking at it. You're just like, I mean, I think it's very similar to the uh, stage one UX maturity model of Nielsen Norman of hostility towards usability. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's unconscious incompetence. <laughs> and then we get to stage two, where he calls it conscious incompetence, where it's like, I know that I'm incompetent about design, but at least I know that I am now. Right. And, and this is the the stage where you actually start to figure out, well, what can I do to, to make myself less incompetent because I'm conscious that I am. Right. And then he gets, to, or, and then he gets to the point where you're just like, well, the conscious competence and this is where the person they've um, sort of, um, they're, they, 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 understand what's going on and they're, and they're, they're competent about it. And, um,
0: so I always think of conscious competence as being in that state where you have to actually think about what you're doing. It's, uh, so like somebody playing a musical instrument where they, they still have to, you know, look at their fingers. Ah,
1: <laughs> uh, Yes, yes, yes. That That's actually a really good analogy.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: It's like, I know that um, I'm pretty good, but I have to think about it. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, exactly. okay, I have to, I have to actually plan out my activities. Um, and then, which brings us to stage four of unconscious competence where it's like, I don't even have to think about it. Right. So I've got a good analogy with this one. It's like, so I, um, I, I, actually worked in food service for about 10 years. So I was a chef at the end of my, that career. And, um, because of that, when I'm preparing a dinner at home, a complex dinner with, you know, d- different things that have different, um, different holding, um, times, different, uh, cooking times and all that stuff. I don't even think about it. I just start on the thing that I know is going to take the longest and I don't, I don't have to think about it anymore because I've done that so much. I did it for 10 years it's ingrained in my head. Um, same thing with, um, like, you know, playing guitar. Um, there's some things about playing guitar that I'm completely at stage four unconscious competence, right? It's like, I cannot think and I can just do the thing that I know that my brain can knows how to do. Right. Um, and that's, you know, when I'm playing like blues and rock stuff, but when it comes to, um, Doing something that I haven't done all my life, guitar-wise, and that's playing, you know, jazz guitar and doing jazz improvisation, where you have to like play solos and improvise over like these crazy changing chord structures all the time. That is definitely a, I have to think about it
0: <laughs> thing, yeah, for sure.
1: Because um, I just I I just didn't, you know, would said that like for hours and hours and hours when I was a kid, like I did playing, you know, rock and blues and and and, and things like that. So that's um, sort of that a good distinction between that conscious competence and the unconscious
0: competence. Like you don't need to think about it. You just, it's just part of who you are. Well, to me, the important thing about unconscious competence is that it reflects that you're good at something, but that you have a blind spot around how good you are or how difficult something might be. So if you ever think about an expert who you ask a question and they fumble around and can't explain it to you, and could have you know already done the thing 5 times in the amount of time it took for them to piece the words together that's that unconscious competence and it's actually something i even accused jared spool of being in our uh, jobs to be done episode right it's like yeah. i think i think sometimes he might lose track of just how hard some of this stuff is cuz he's been doing it since uh like the 80s yeah a <laughs> long time <laughs> cool cool um what is it about that particular framework um that made you uh you said you wanted to talk about specifically
1: oh i just wanted to bring it up because jerry's bull has one more um i think maturity model that and they all have their merits right they're all like and it's uh, so why I encourage you if you're going to use a maturity model like this, like look at a bunch of them and figure out which one's going to be the easiest thing or the, the best thing for the situation you're in right because he also has this third one where it's like an organization and this is like a three step stage um, maturity model and it's, and it's very 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 simple it's sort of based on the product and feature release criteria that you have right so Interesting. at stage one we Our our release criteria for a feature is it works technically, (laughs) right? It does what was specified or what somebody thought needed to be done to do a certain thing, right? So that's sort of stage one. And then stage two is the feature works technically, but it also meets a business need of the customer.
0: Also technically. Right, (laughs) right.
1: Um, And you know, so t- and technically meets the and it might be. Um, you could also say it also meets the business need of the, the 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 company that is providing the service or product, right? So that's sort of stage two. Um, And so for stage three, the release criteria is not only the feature works and it meets the business need of the customer or the organization, but it's also a good experience. So I think these are actually three very, very distinct things. And it's something that's like, hey, if we're if we're only to the point where things are only working technically and it's actually not been business needs, that's a huge amount of work to get from stage one to stage two. Right. And then once you get to the point it's like, okay, yeah, we don't release features until it's, you know, we know it works and it's also meeting the business needs of a customer. Um but we're if it's not a good experience, ah, we'll fix that later. We can we can we, we can fix that later. Right. Which you never do, because you know
0: the 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 myth of Virgin Two. Um, so yeah, that I mean that's my critique of this particular model is that it, it holds a good user experience as you know the the value of that as being self evident that um, somebody should understand that that's an important layer to have when I'd say most you know in industrial management would say. No, stage 2 is the right level of, you know, investment, right? If it's if it's meeting everybody's needs, it's doing a good enough job, then that's as much as you should want or need. And it fails to take into account the the you know, stale mindsets of a lot of people that think that, you know, making it pretty, making it slick, all that kind of stuff really doesn't matter. It's just, you know, extra uh, seasoning
1: yeah I think that stage three doesn't matter until the rest of your competition is at stage three, and then it's too late <laughs> and, then, and, and then you're dead in the water so, right right yeah'
0: Cause that's not um that's not a capability you can just you know add on instantly, right Nope, That's not uh going back to the industrial management thing, that's not just another robot you can add to the factory floor to say, okay, <laughs> and here's where we spray on the good experience <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right,
1: so you could probably map these stages, these you know, stage one, two, three of this tip UX tipping point model into you know some of the other ones, but I, I think, like I said, it depends on the the audience and the situation you have. You know, pick a pick a model that's going to get the results that you need to get res- for for your particular organization and 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 and,
0: and where they are. Well, particularly. The- through the lens of what you're saying about the importance of being able to have a conversation, right? So my critique of the Nielsen Norman model is that, okay, I've got to spend half an hour just to explain it and you know hope that I can get my audience to really step through this with me. If they're engaged and if they you know already somewhat care, then cool. Um, if you're in the elevator with your you know C level executive, then maybe this tipping point model is a little bit better to look at.
1: So ultimately the, the model that I used for our practice, um, and that's the thing about a maturity model is like once you pick one, you kind of have to stay with it for the sort of the entire time that you're at a particular thing until you have some other, I don't know. Maybe there's there's some other tipping point that allows you to switch over to a different maturity model, but uh, <laughs> I've sort of kept the same one just because you know you you, you want to show progress on what you were originally porting. So I used the one from Leah Bully, um, and it's the one that she developed while she was at Forster Research, and it has a three different levels. So like a lot of like the Nielsen Norman had eight levels, right? And that seems like a lot. Um, but this the, the interesting thing about this one is like it only has three levels. It's called outdated progressive and modern. And it also splits it up across a, a bunch of different categories like the the scope that UX works on and how much their UX is involved in strategy and what's the level of research they do and how do they approach design and how do they approach staffing and how do they approach measuring um, the, the user experience? Um, which this one's nice is because like all those other modules seem to be like, oh, you're either at stage one or you're at stage two or you're at stage three or you're at stage four the thing I liked about this model was it's like I could be at uh stage one for strategy, but, but research wise, we're at stage two. Right. And so the nice thing about this model was it allowed me to say, show where we are at different in different categories, maturity wise and say, Hey, yeah, we're not going to get to the point where, you know, we're going to get to um, uh, go from generalists to um, uh, specialist um, UX, a, you know, role wise yet, but right. we're not doing any user research right now, and we need to push the needle on user research. And so, I want to get us from outdated to progressive by the end of this year, right? And so, but we're going to leave the the staffing to generalist, even though you know we're going to do more user research. Um, we just can't, you know, hire a dedicated researcher at this point. So we can. So that's why, again, I like this model because I can like I can have I can be at different stages for different categories and show where we want to move the needle in the next year to reach our business goals for that one. So that's why I really like the Leabuli one a lot.
0: I I have to agree. I think this is a, a great model. I think it's easy to understand. It calls out some of the most important areas such as you know scope, strategy, research, design, staffing, measurement. I also like that um, when it comes to adapting it to your own particular practice, you could put in other things that you find matter to your organization or your mission, uh, as the case may be. Um, Like I said, when I saw you present uh, your user experience maturity model, um, not only did you just you didn't just take somebody else's model, you took it and adapted it to be specific to our product, specific to our company, specific to our industry. And so I guess that would be the other big thing that I would call out in this discussion is find the model that's going to work for you and for you know the goals you have for the model itself. In other words, are you looking for executive buy-in or are you looking to you know uh, lay out where you're trying to take your practice, but don't just stick with like the default text that's in the boxes. Um, Update it and make it your own so that people can see that this is very specific to what we're trying to accomplish in our context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I 100% agree with that. so I, and I think that's probably why I picked the Leah Bully one because it had the more, it was more flexible, right? Because mm-hmm. like I said, I could, I could, you know, I kind of went with the, with the categories that she had, but I could have, you know, added different categories and it definitely updated the sort of description of what we were trying to accomplish in each one of them. Although they sort of, you know, clung to the, to the original, you know, spirit of that particular criteria, but, you know, kind of just made it more relevant to the practice
0: that 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 we were trying to mature at the time. So, uh taking a look back, uh you implemented um user experience maturity model in your practice what 3 years ago? Yep. Um do you have any pointers or assessment on how it's served you? I would say it's served me pretty well.
1: Um, it was uh, again a very good communication tool um, for the executive level, because it, it was, uh, it was sort of concepts that they were familiar with maturity models. Um, so that's a, it's a really good to talk, like I said, talk the language of business to business people. Um, I think that, um, the, one of the things I would, I would, I would highly recommend is make sure that you, it, you make it a regular thing that you report up. Right, it's like you can't just do it that first time. You have to have, make sure that you know you're reporting this up on a regular basis, whether it's every six months or yearly, um, to you know as many of the executive team that that, that it makes sense for you, um, and 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 keep doing it because you know, there's sometimes there's executive turnover and they don't actually, you know, they, they don't have that context any longer. And it's like, well, why is this UX team even important? Well, let me tell you about why the UX team is important. I can show you the maturity model and where we were and how far we progressed and how it maps to what the, our business goals have been in the past, you know, three years. So, um, yeah, definitely um, customizing it for what you're doing is is, is the way to go.
0: I could see even tying this back to particular accomplishments. So like when you share out to the organization, here's a video of highlights of users using our software um, and, you know, piggybacking on that with. And by the way, this reflects the culmination of our efforts to mature our uh, research practices, you know, whereas we were just doing. You know, this particular type of research now we're, you know, doing a more mature approach, um, you know something you can k- kind of tie back to, you know, here's here's why our practice is good and effective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So sort of in, in summary, like what are we using a, a, a UX maturity model for? I like to use it as a research and assessment tool as the very first thing that you do when you're coming in as a leader into a UX organization or a product organization, right? Research and assessment tool. So I can say, here are the things that we actually want to measure that are important, right? And so taking a model, um, you know, doing a bunch of research in your own organization to figure out, you know, how everything, uh, how people work, how people work together, what are their processes, what are the tools they use, and then, you know, sort of do that. That selection and be able to you know sort of target those those um, those research areas that you're trying to do in those first ninety days that you're at an organization, and then using it as a planning tool to say hey here's where we are now here's where we want to go based upon business needs using it as a communication tool to. Communicate to the 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 business and the 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 executive level um, to as a as a conversation starter for uh, for for concepts and things like that, and also you know sort of selling the idea. And as you just said at the very end, there also selling your team, right? Selling so showing you know, it's like, hey, here's what we accomplished this year, and this is why it's important. And it moved it moved the needle in these areas right here, and here's where the the, the value we got out of the business for that.
0: Well, it sounds like a, a great tool, uh, really solid advice. And so if anybody has questions, I would encourage them to reach out to @LAking at LA King on Twitter to get more, uh, insights about this impressive tool.
1: Yeah. I'd be happy to talk more nerdy stuff about
0: maturity models.
1: <laughs> Anytime. Cause that's just how nerdy I am. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of maturity models, uh, there's kind of a funny coincidence. Uh, I have uh, something a little different for Stuff Designers Love. Stuff Designers Love. So it's not specific to design, but uh, as a, a part of who I am, my family, um, we have a, a son with ADHD. And I recently came across a video that will be linked here in the show notes that has really um, changed my understanding of of ADHD. Um, So despite living with it for, you know, as long as my son's been (laughs) alive and seeing lots of doctors and teachers and therapists and counselors and uh, even a a few exorcists, I think, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've never had a real good understanding of uh, the disorder itself. And so um, despite knowing... A lot about, um, I guess, the symptoms and living with it every day and caring deeply about it. I can't say that I've ever actually really understood it. And so, um, yeah, Dr. Barkley, he—I believe he's a, a Canadian. Uh, I want to say a pathopsychologist. Um Basically, he's studied ADHD in depth, and so the video is uh, relatively long, uh, especially for an ADHD audience. I think it's uh, in the neighborhood of like two hours. Oh um, my god! That yeah yeah.
1: Whoa, that's not knowing your audience there. Oh wait a minute! It's not
0: for people <laughs> with ADHD. It's for people it's for that, people yeah. Uh, who, gotcha. People who love someone with ADHD. Yeah. But what if um,
1: you? What if you're a parent that also has the ADHD?
0: You know, and he actually then, talks a bit about that. And, uh, <laughs> and this, but I can
1: uh but now I gotta watch a two hour video and I know that I won't be able to do it.
0: <laughs> I shouldn't have mentioned the runtime because it's really fantastic. He's a great speaker, very engaging despite having a super dry sense of humor. So you'll hear the, the audience uh laughing quite frequently um when he doesn't appear to have told a joke, but he just he's funny <laughs> that way. Um but yeah, so he gets into the, the specifics of um, how ADHD, you know, attention deficit is really just, it's kind of a poor name for uh, a disorder because it um, puts all the emphasis again on the, um, on the symptoms, right? So the symptom is that I can't pay attention for a long duration. I can't keep things in mind, but the actual disorder itself is a developmental delay. And so, um, having watched it, you know, has helped me uh, build a lot more empathy and understanding of my son. Just in the, in the week since I saw this, um, it's encouraged me to want to look into it more, um, and really to bring it to all the communities that I I participate in. Because um, I, you know, I was probably chief amongst people who thought that ADHD was just. Really, uh, a clinical excuse for you know poor discipline um, and bad behavior. <laughs> you know, um, I you know I've just always kind of secretly, not even not secretly, I've always just kind of harbored that point of view. Um, understanding it's a developmental delay and actually getting the rundown on like the brain science and you know the what types of medications are effective and what kinds of interventions are not effective. Um, God would have saved me many many uh, <laughs> thousands of dollars already. <laughs> yeah. In particular he talks about like, yeah, just sending your kid to like uh ADHD camp and expecting him to come back <laughs> without ADHD, like good luck. <laughs> well, as
1: as also a another parent with a a child with ADHD and who also is borderline ADHD himself, um I am actually really looking forward to watching this video because um like like you said it's like you probably would have saved a lot of time in the non-effective um techniques i've already learned about what the non-effective techniques are the hard way (laughs)
0: I've learned <laughs> all with the non effective techniques, which is just all of them, as far as I could tell, right? Yeah. It's just like, oh, this is just hopeless. But yeah. I'm getting a much better understanding of, like, oh, actually, these are the areas that we could focus in. Yep. In particular, he, he points out that it's not a, uh, a psychological problem. So all the counseling for kids with ADHD is a massive waste of time because you can't talk me into not having a developmental delay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you can't talk me out of a, a chemical imbalance.
0: In my brain. <laughs> so uh, I would be doing him a disservice if I tried to explain, you know, the main concepts. And there's there's a lot of meat in there. But um, in particular, he talks about how really um, and, uh, an analog for the ADHD label would be time blindness. And I was like, oh, yeah, that totally resonates with me. <laughs> like. Time this lines. is a person who doesn't see past like uh, right now, uh-huh. <laughs> right? So saying, "Oh, you, if you don't brush your teeth, then someday you're gonna get cavities." Like what? <laughs> it just doesn't doesn't resonate. Doesn't yeah, make I was
1: I was thinking more of the from the time point of view of the urgency to actually get ready in the morning and be ready oh. for school. <sighs> I need a drink.
0: I need a strong drink now. You just, yeah, <laughs> this is getting too real Larry. I know. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to bring up, open up some moons there. Yeah, no couldn't. Well, if you found this show useful, usable and desirable, please share a quick review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The reviews help people find the show and we appreciate your help.
1: And remember that UX like us is your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UX like us and let us know who you'd like to have on the show and what you're discussing in your practice. I am LA King, Larry King at, uh, yeah. And Roman Burcott is at Superman. And thank you for listening to us.
0: All right. Where's the rap? Where is it?